Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You're listening to our Sex and Spirituality series, which will contain references to various aspects of human sexuality and may not be suitable for all listeners. Okay. All right, say something. Um, apathetic old men on roller skates. Jeffrey Samuel loosely defines Tantra as the ritual practices and tradition within both Buddhist and Hindu Saiva sources that present themselves as sophisticated and elevated means for the attainment of exalted spiritual goals, yet contain constant reference to practices that seem deliberately transgressive and bizarre. These include orgies, crematoriums, cannibalism, creating instruments out of human body parts, and having sex on top of corpses. In modern India, right-hand practitioners have derived more respectable rituals from these original tantric practices. Left-hand practitioners, metaphorically on the other hand, sit naked at crematoriums covered in ash, drinking from a human skull. The right and left hand have loaded connotations in India, since the right hand is used to eat, and the left hand to, um, handle pollution. In the wider culture, left-hand practitioners have been portrayed as evil and comical, from 6th century Sanskrit drama to modern Bollywood movies, despite the fact that they were often valued and feared. And yet, tantric practitioners are situated among a lay community who regularly turns to them for magical acts like healing rites. Western culture, particularly in New Age communities, has come to identify tantra with sex. Seven-hour sessions of intimacy and orgasm. Tantra, like yoga, has been a major spiritual import, coming mostly from India and Tibet. Historically, tantric practices were associated most closely with the cults of the goddess, a singular and powerful divine feminine force who emanates many faces and many forms. Today on Occult Confessions, we try to get a bird's-eye view of the long history of Tantra from ancient India, uh, actually just from ancient India to modern India, and in the next episode, we're going to go to 21st century America. So this is a two-parter, so uh, strap in, saddle up. My name is Dr. Rob C. Thompson, and some of our more uh, finely tuned ears out there may notice that uh, I am in a new space. In fact, I am not in a new space, but an old space. I am back on stage at the Cadby Theater at uh, Chesapeake College. We are over the hump. The 18 months of uh, dry spell have ended, and and we have returned to our space. I am joined by uh, the only person I could bring back, I think, under the circumstances to get us uh, back into this mode, the captain the captain of our table, James Caplanches. It's great to be back, Rob. And we have a table for you, man. We have an actual table. You're um, kind of distant yeah, from it because we're still social distancing. <laughs> <laughs> but the table is here. You can see it from a distance. Yeah, I can see the whole thing. So. <laughs> so James is across the stage from me because, you know, Delta variant and all, uh, even though we're vaccinated, we're still taking precautions. Safety first. Safety first. Uh, but here, we're in the theater, man. That's ex- this is exciting. It is exciting. This it's, is it. It feels good to be back. It's kind of surreal. Right? It I'm, is. Yeah, it's I'm strange. Like, I'm like two years older. <laughs> I don't want to think about way. that. I don't want to think about that. Yeah. How, think of how, how many episodes have passed. You disappeared for a while. We brought you back. It's been yeah, crazy. It's, it's been, been crazy. insane. 
but we're here. We're here. All right, let's pledge it out. We, we the, the members, members of the secret order of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I gotta say, uh, I've learned how to edit it so that it sounds like we're together. That is the first time in 18 months we have actually said that together. <laughs> well, you know, we're here, we're here. We're live in this space. Everything is so much easier. Oh, it's a, it's a new place. Okay, you gotta open up those plugs for me, James. Plug, plug, plug. We have so many people to thank. Uh, we have so much to get caught up on. Uh, I, I've i sort of taken a, a paternity leave from the podcast. Um, I said I would do it in August. I ended up doing it more like September because I went back to work. Uh, we had a couple episodes that Olivia did, and I did a couple of interview episodes with our friends out in the podcastosphere. Um, so we've had some patrons, we've had a bunch of people joining us on Patreon. I am so grateful because I have not been pushing Patreon very hard, hard because I've been away. Um, so I'm going to split the list up, uh, because I want to make sure everybody gets a moment here. Um, first I, I, let me, let me start by acknowledging our pledge bumps. So these are folks who are been pledging, but they've, they've bumped the pledge. I'm going to do all those. That is Santiago, Stephanie with an F, Bethany W, Brian D, Jaden S, Ian J, and LJM. Thank you, pledge bumpers. James, a little word for them. Thank you so much from the deepest denizens of our heart. From the deepest places where we bump. Yes. Uh, and now let's do some new patrons. Uh, I'll just get a handful of those. Winter H, uh, Rice C, or Reese, Eric A, Jade E, Frankie, Song of Sithis, yeah. Dave N, Cameron Shepard, and Blartimus. I like that, Blartimus. Yeah, about that. I've also been doing the reviews as part of the plugs, and I'm fine with that because... I really want to encourage everyone to review us. We cannot have enough of these. Um, the show is growing and we're very grateful, but uh, we got to keep getting people doing those reviews. Even if you don't feel like writing anything, just drop us some stars. Um, it is much appreciated. Dude says it's wicked good. Luke in Boer. Luke in Boer is a student of things occult and a Marylander, much mm. like us, and gives us an A+. Buckaroo76 says we're exceptionally well-produced and entertaining, uh, and he says Rob has a voice for radio. Well, thank you. I think he does as well. I prefer to have a voice for podcasting myself, <laughs> but thank you very much, Buckaroo. Clark SKS says we're a great blend of history of the occult and theater, genuine, not overproduced. I love that, not overproduced. Yeah. The real deal, the real indie deal here. And our, our buddy Tom RP gives us a British A+, and this is just for you, Tom. I'm giving another mention to Buff Men right here and now. Tom will know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we also want to thank William McGonagall on Podchaser. Gives us an A+. Plus, 11 out of 10. Very happy uh, William stumbled across our show. Podchaser is another place where you can review us if you're one of our many Spotify listeners, and there are many more Spotify listeners than there are listeners on any other platform. That's just the nature of the game. Uh, you can go on Podchaser, make an account, and uh, that's where you can not only rate us, but see the podcasts that we like um, and, and see the podcasts I'm reviewing out there. Uh, and it's just a great way to explore podcasts if you, if you love them. So check out Podchaser. And I'm going to use the Order of Confessors to get into all the stuff, all the new content we're producing. So you're going to have to wait till the end for that. James, close us up. Plug, plug, plug. 
It's time for Tantra, James. You're here, of course, because you are our, our most passionate fan of things East, I think. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair, yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, Eastern culture, uh, which, of course, is going to come West, as particularly uh, with Sting and the police. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to go get, get sexy. It's time to get sexy here on the podcast. Uh, for good, there's a lot of reasons we're doing a series on sex. Uh, now the least of which is that, you know, sex like food is one of those things that it just dominates the culture. (laughs) One of those appetites, but sex I think is more complicated. You know, food an apple, you don't have to talk the apple into being consumed, but Sex involves complex negotiations between human beings. Uh, it's psychological. It's uh, it's physical, of course, um, and it's it, it, for Emotional. many people, it's yeah. taken on a spiritual context. Um, so we're not so much going to be talking about sex magic. We've been doing that for the whole show with Aleister Crowley and and. Uh, the temple of psychic youth that's kind of like more the western lens right yeah we've well we're going west don't get me wrong so we're starting east but we will be doing east and west what i'm interested in in this series is um is sex but not sex magic (laughs) so all the ways sex intersects with occultism that we wouldn't characterize specifically as sex magic and that properly is tantra tantra is part of uh it's an established uh, world religion. Uh, not that you don't have to, you have to be established to matter, but a world religion, Hinduism and, and Buddhism as well. Um, so it's part of these the, these traditions that are quite you know big, uh, the considered world religions in part because of the number of adherents they have. So so we're interested in the intersections between sex and these Eastern traditions. We'll get into Christianity and priestly celibacy, which fascinates me. Why do priests not have sex? We're going to answer that in an episode. Uh, we're going to talk about Casanova and whether or not Casanova used uh, magic in his sex practices, <laughs> period. Uh, so we're just going to be looking at all the different intersections of sex and religion. I think this this season it's going to be a lot of fun. I guess really interesting the the priestly aspect because yeah. I mean growing up Greek Orthodox, our priests had families, <laughs> as do all Protestant pastors kind of, for the yeah, most part. They would kind of talk shit on like the Catholic priests. <laughs> And I didn't get it at the time, but like, you know. It's an interesting story. So something to look forward to, but not this day, James. Today, today. we're going to talk about people drinking out of skulls and having sex in crematoriums. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Traditionally, the word tantra referred to weaving and came to denote certain texts woven of words. Uh, Although not all of those texts contain theories that we would necessarily call tantric today because of its association with sex. The mythical origin of the Tantra texts from the Tantraja Tantra is that it was revealed by Lord Shiva to the supreme goddess Sakti at the dawn of the first cosmic age. So Shiva um, dances the dance of destruction, but also Shiva is the family god, the only god that has a notable family with children and, and a wife. So Shiva is receiving these texts from the goddess. So it's the goddess's teaching. A feminine teaching. The teachings passed from Shiva to the nine perfected masters who were responsible for bringing it then to earth. Historically, it's difficult to trace the exact origins of the traditions organized under the Tantra heading. Scholars promote several different narratives. The first is based on Indian history. India was invaded and colonized by the Aryan tribes around 1700 BCE, as you know, James. Yes. According to this version of events, popular with the Western New Age, 
tantric community in particular, the tribes of the Indus Valley were matriarchal and their worship revolved around a goddess. Now, we're not sure about that. Right. There's not a lot to be sure about the Indus Valley civilization. Uh, 1,700 years ago, too. It's a long time ago. Uh, and I'm not saying that to be flip. It's History gets harder and harder to trace the further back we go, particularly without you know extensive written records. So this is the belief among, again, New Age communities, right. that they were matriarchal. With the arrival of the patriarchal Aryans, these practices went underground, says the legend, becoming the tantric tradition as we know it. It's also possible that tantra was imported from communities on the margins of India, notably Bengal, where it continues to have a fruitful life. So we can look at what's happening today, like in Bengal there is a lot of tantra, and say, oh... Well, if there's a lot of Tantra today in Bengal, maybe these traditions ultimately came out or used to come out of Bengal, and that's how they got into the other parts of India. Both of these perspectives understand Tantra as a popular movement, but another version of the story has Tantra emerging from the elite Brahmin priests after the Aryan invasion and the establishment of the Vedic religion that we now call Hinduism. So there's your three ways into it. So maybe the priests had it as a kind of secret teaching. A secret teaching. Sex is always a secret teaching, right? Well, you said, but that is kind of more for the lay person. And it was was the left hand work. Well, we'll get into left and right end, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Left and right end is more about how you're practicing. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so although there are many texts called tantras in the Hindu and Buddhist canon, the earliest reference to tantras is in the Kadambari, which tells of a South Indian man who possesses a collection of tantras and mantras composed on palm leaf. What these tantras are is left up to the reader. In Buddhism, tantric texts date to between 300 and 800, suggesting that the earliest we can confidently say the concept of tantric knowledge was circulating was about 800 give or take and i'm talking Peace. in common era oh common era so yeah. I see. yeah okay early tantric writers differentiated themselves by identifying themselves as worshipers of sakti and shiva goddess and god bearing in mind of course that shiva is one of multiple gods including vishnu and brahma <laughs> among many others shiva has god children anyhow Vedic authors writing in opposition to tantric teaching labeled them as the work of Shiva who created them in order to bring people back to the Vedas from Buddhist teaching. Shiva taught indulgence in food, drink, and sex to undo the austerity of Buddhist teaching. In other words, these tantric texts were inferior but better than Buddhism. So that might have been a little confusing at first. That like, is well, confusing, why yeah. would the Vedic authors <laughs> say that Shiva, the god, taught these texts? Because they're saying, even though they're focused on sensual pleasures, they're an improvement on Buddhism. Okay. It's almost yeah. like a weird, elaborate joke that they're... <laughs> Not like a, it's not like a practical joke, but like they think this is very funny. Yes, they have sex and enjoy food, but that's uh, better than Buddhism. Right. Brunch. <laughs> <laughs> could be worse. You could be a Buddhist. You're having sex in a cemetery, but you could be a Buddhist. <laughs> when does the cemetery come in? <laughs> well, there's no cemetery. It's the crematorium. Right. Wherever they keep the urns. But this account, as well as stories in Sanskrit dramas of tantric practitioners, don't identify tantra as a unified tradition, but rather a series of texts and practices isolated unto themselves. So, 
is Tantra a single tradition or is it a bunch of different things that we have retroactively decided to label Tantra? Generally, we understand that there isn't a monolithic tantric tradition. I mean, and that's just true. There's lots of different approaches to Tantra. But tantric texts do often promote some, some similar things. For example, forbidden practices, most notably the consumption of the five M's, or five forbidden substances. You know those, of course, James. Uh, uh, marijuana? <laughs> no, no, that one's okay. <laughs> Right? Marijuana, M&M's. M&M's. <laughs> Merlot. And milk. And yeah, milk. that's... No. <laughs> those are not the... We're no, missing an M. We need one more. Uh, uh, male. I was going to say Madonna. Madonna. <laughs> it's pretty good. We that's didn't good have one. any culture in there. <laughs> well, music. Any performance. Okay, so no, those are, of course, not the five M's. The real five M's. The real five M's are Mamsa, Matsya, Majya, Mudra, and Mayithuna. Which translate James to? Uh, M and M's, Madonna, M and M's, Madonna, Merlot. It is, it is meat, fish. You were right with Merlot. Wine, oh, wine, nice. Parched grain, and sex. Don't w- parch your grains. Yeah, what is parched grain? Uh, I think you let it dry. You dried grains. Oh, like alcohol? No. Uh, parched. Parched. You dried out too much. That's weird. I mean, I'm just defining parched. I don't. Yeah. I've never, I don't details. think I've had that one. Let's go through it. For the Tantrika, the satisfaction of desires is a necessary step to enlightenment. Sex in Hindu Tantras is the union of Shiva and Sakti. For Buddhists, it is the union of the active and passive principle. Well, I guess we could borrow from the Taoists there and think about yin and yang. In both cases, it possesses a divinity. There are ancient Chinese who just flipped out when I made that comparison. <laughs> Buddhism, <laughs> Taoism, ancient Chinese spirits don't like that. But the way sex is meant to be carried out varies from text to text. So sex is involved, but it's variable. Some advocate ejaculation into the female. It's getting hot now. (laughs) Listeners love when I talk about ejaculation. Others, sublimation of the semen back into the male. So that's when you withhold the ejaculation. Um, It's a form of like multiple male orgasm. You don't ejaculate. Still others, oral consumption, as in some of Aleister Crowley's rites. So eating of the the male semen. The role of the female may be as a partner in this spiritual exercise or as a mere tool. So maybe she's also on some sort of ascension path, but maybe she's just a tool for the male to carry on that path. Does that make sense? Today, the word Tantra often refers to a kind of black magic, dangerous, powerful, and a quick but scandalous path to liberation. Tantric sects, S-E-C-T-S, are often associated with criminality and fraud and also adultery. A 2000 movie, Shaitan Tantric, created by A. Kumar, tells the story of a tantric priest who collects and sacrifices women to the goddess Kali. So even in India, there are these associations of Tantra with bizarre human sacrifice and weird sex and and that sort of thing it's not just a western invention let's do a little bit of the history of tantra now shall we i I would love that looking outside of tantra's textual history we find a variety of artifacts and rituals that align with tantric worship beginning with the goddess statues 
Tantric worship is not only about forbidden things, or just the goddess Kali, see our episode on the goddess Kali, but also about the goddess in all of her forms, because Kali, after all, is just one aspect of the goddess. This is made clear in the fairly recent Mahanirvana Tantra, dating to the 18th century. It is a dialogue between Shiva and his wife Parvati on Mount Kailasa. Thou art the only para-prakriti of the Supreme Soul, Brahman, and from thee has sprung the whole universe. O Shiva, its mother, O gracious one, whatever there is in this world, of things which have and are without motion, from Mahat to an atom, owes its origin to and is dependent on thee. Thou art the original manifestations, thou art the birthplace of even us. Thou knowest the whole world, yet none know thee. Thou art Kali, Turini, Durga, Shodashi, Bhuvaneshvari, Dumavati. Thou art Bhaga, Baharavi, and Chahina Maskata. Thou art Annapurna, Vagdevi, Kamalileya. Thou art the image or embodiment of all Shaktis and all Divas. Thou art both subtle and gross manifested and veiled, formless yet with form. Who can understand thee? The earliest Indian mother goddess figure was found in the Balon Valley and dates to at least 19,000 years ago. Yeah, they have really, really deep roots. So we were talking about 1,700 years ago. We yeah. don't know what that was like. <laughs> Jeez. 19,000 years ago. We got nothing on this statue. But even the more recent statues found in Pakistan date to 4500 to 3000 BCE. These include three categories of portrayals of the goddess. There are the mother goddess statues with a pinched nose and horned headdress, the black spot snake goddess statues, and the goddess statues with exaggerated genitalia. You have a favorite among those, James? I like the spotted one. Nice. Going with the snake. Mm. <laughs> the genitalia one would be kind of a weird choice, I guess. Yeah, that's not really my style. <laughs> People might judge you. <laughs> and the last version includes hermaphroditic figures. It's interesting. The earliest group that we might identify with tantric practice were the Vratyas, a subgroup of outcast young men mentioned in the Rig Veda, dating to around 1000 BCE. Vratyas were outsiders, existing beyond the limits of acceptable society. They self-identified with Shiva, seeking to emulate his ascetic meditation. So Shiva is a god of so many things. Family god, destroyer. Shiva is also the patron god of yogis who wander by themselves. Like aestheticism? Yes, yeah. You go see him on the side of the road, covered in ash, wearing, you know, the the Gandhi mm-hmm. non-outfit, or they're naked, uh, and they're followers of Shiva's yogic practice. Hindu deities tend to encapsulate intense oppositions, um, as I'm saying. Shiva is the destroyer in the triad, with Vishnu the preserver, Brahma the creator, but this is only one aspect of his complex role in the pantheon. His children, by the way, are Ganesha and Skanda. Um... And he is the loner god of ascetic ascetic holy men. Like the meditative aspect of Shiva, Vratyas were often ascetic and understood to be capable of magical feats. It's the other thing. They could achieve magic. We talk about this a bit actually in the Emma Harding Britain episode, way at the beginning. She comes across these yogis who are performing magic. 
cutting out their insides and yeah, stuff. Yeah, do impossible things. <laughs> yeah. Mastery over their bodies and whatnot. Next in line chronologically after the Vatrias were the Pasupatas, who were known for engaging in deliberately shocking behavior. The Pasupatas were founded by the possibly legendary Lakulisa, regarded as the incarnation of Shiva around the year 100, on this side of the year zero, or one. They worked through a series of stages of spiritual development. The first stage, they bathed in ash and lived in the temples where they laughed and danced and sang. So you're covered in ash, but you're having a good time. In the second stage, the Pasupata initiate left the temple in order to court others' disdain. So you walk out and piss people off. Ooh, that sounds like fun. (laughs) I can get down with that. This is a bit like the Greek cynics. You know the cynics? Why? Because they're dirty? Well, they go around annoying people. Oh, okay. I was about to say, Rob, that's a little racy. (laughs) That thing you're doing, that's stupid. Uh, Pasupatas wandered from place to place, attracting rejection and dishonor. For example, a Pasupata might flirt with a beautiful woman so that villagers would scold him for failing to be a chaste holy man. In theory, when others scorned him, his bad karma went to them and their merit came to him because the Pasupata initiate was not actually worthy of dishonor. He was doing it on purpose. Right. Okay. So you're just kind of letting people show you their asses. Yeah, even though they're wrong. And gaining energy from it. Right, because they don't understand that you're intentionally doing this thing. And that you don't actually mean to flirt with a woman. You're flirting for the purpose of being dishonored, not for sex or anything. Right. The Pasupata was only acting at dishonorability and had no intention of following through on the flirtations. It was all a show. After this transitional phase, the Pasupata became a Siddha with magical ritual powers akin to those of Shiva. By attracting others' disdain, the Pasupatas come closer to our idea of Tantra, and they share with the Vratyas a capacity for magical power. The Harsakarita describes early tantric practices performed for a very ill king. These rites included the yantra or mystical diagram, the offering of human or animal heads to Rudra, prayers to Kandika, the ten-headed form of Durga, Durga is like an angry goddess like Kali, Oh, and a burning of incense on the devotee's head, and an offering of the worshiper's own flesh to the goddess. This is getting pretty intense. Uh, the, just goddess, generally. Oh, I meant forms. like what form of are oh, you? Flesh? flesh, yeah. Uh, like just like cutting off pieces of skin, yeah. little ones, little little, little <laughs> ones, nothing too crazy. <laughs> okay, good. Keep your head attached. Right. There's also a secret ritual involving a sava or zombie and an initiation rite requiring the sacrifice of a buffalo. Don't ask me about the zombie; it's cool, but I could not find any more about Ooh. the zombie. <laughs> After receiving his salute, the prince asked whether there was any improvement in his father's condition or not. Not at present, was the reply, but there may be when he sees your highness. So, amid the salutations of the chamberlains, he slowly entered the palace. There he found people bestowing all their goods and presents, worshipping the family gods, and engaged in cooking the ambrosial posset, performing the six oblation sacrifice offering tremulous derva leaves besmeared with clotted butter, chanting the Mahamare hymn, purifying the household, completing the rites for keeping out the spirits by offerings. Earnest Brahmins were occupied in muttering Vedic text. 
Shiva's temple resounded with the murmur of the Handicad to Rudra. Shivas of great holiness were bathing in Virupaska's image with thousands of vessels of milk. Seated in the courtyard were kings, distressed in mind at failing to obtain a sight of their sovereign. Bathing, eating, and sleeping had become mere names to them, and their clothes were foul from neglect of the toilet, while they passed day and night motionless as though pictured awaiting bulletins from the king's personal attendants who came bursting in from the inner apartments. Kapalikas, or skullmen, followed the Pasupatas in chronology, with earliest references to them appearing between the 3rd and 5th century. They worshipped Bahirava, the violent and criminal former emanation of Siva, Shiva. Bahirava is depicted as smeared in ashes, living in the cremation grounds with dogs and carrying a skull, which is the fifth head of Brahma. Bhairava was born out of a conversation between Vishnu and Brahma that went wrong, resulting, of course, in a head getting cut off. What is this uh, covered in ash symbolism? Like, what is that? Death. Death. Yeah, okay. it's, it's a nearness to death. It's not a shying away from death, but embracing it. Because you become ash in the end. Right. Particularly in India, where you often aren't buried, you're cremated. Brahma, who is the supreme creator of the universe? I am the supreme creator, and you should worship me. If you are superior to me, Brahma, what is your relation to Siva? I have five heads. Siva also has five heads. I can do everything that Siva does, and so... I must be Siva. We are the same. I may do his work as well as he does it. I am the supreme creator, and you should worship me. Brahma has become egotistical and forgotten what work is mine. With this hair from my head, I shall manifest Kalabharava, incarnation of annihilation, destroyer of fear who is beyond fear. And the fierce Bahirava casually lopped off the fifth of Brahma's heads, destroying his ego and causing Brahma to become enlightened. So it worked out. He had five heads. Didn't need them all. I guess not. He just lost one and he was enlightened. What, through like pain? Or like... <laughs> it was the loss of ego. Right, the loss of the ego. Okay, yeah, I yeah, see. Yeah. That was, I mean, I guess the heads would probably symbolize different aspects of the self. Often, you know, the so, Hindu yeah, myths. Chopped or... off the right head. The ego head, yeah. 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 Not the good one. Right. The ego one. Bhairava, like his Kapalika followers, is performing Mahavrata, a form of penance imposed for murdering a Brahmin priest. Bhairava performs this penance for destroying the fifth head of Brahma. Assuming the role of the worst of all criminals without having committed the crime places Kapalika outside of all social constraint. They indulge in sex, particularly with the Dombi women selling goods outside the town, and they also indulge in alcohol, which, not a good thing. It's one of the, right, one of the one M's. Of the, it's one of the M's. It's yeah. Merlot. It's Merlot, <laughs> yes. They were regarded as having magical powers, yet again, bestowed on them by female deities as well as human yoginis and dakinis. Liberating insight was one of those powers passed from guru to initiate and could take the form of the guru and his consort sexual fluids, which the initiate consumed to become part of the spiritual family. So. <laughs> Initiation. Yeah, so we've got all these different variations of tantric followers. 
India's medieval period was a golden age of Tantra. Rituals involving the 5M spread, and Tantra's alchemists sought to transform base metals into gold, as in the West, and to lengthen their lives, as in Chinese alchemy. Yantras and mandalas became a regular feature of the rituals, showing both the subtle and the gross elements of Devi the goddess. Around the 8th century, the Tantras incorporated the kundalini yogic concept that the supreme power of the universe exists in a dormant state in the body and can be awakened through certain practices. That's exciting. Bit of yoga. Yeah. When you when you use tantric uh, or the tantra like of like a noun, you said the tantras and the mandalas. The tantra. The tantra. The text. We've been talking okay, about the texts, the texts I think, of there, the, Okay, yeah. I see. I mean, fairly. That's the that's the thing we can all be most confident of is the text. Yes. Speak about the tantras. Uh, but calling something tantric, we're generally referring to rituals or particular ritual practitioners. Let's talk about the goddess, shall we? Oh, yeah. Let's. It's about time. After the first millennium, the goddess Kali entered tantric practice. After the first millennium. So only in the last thousand years. <laughs> only when we're talking about Hinduism can we say only in the last thousand, thousand years. years right? The Vedas record an early list of goddesses, including the universal mother, dawn, night, the supreme mother, uh, and the river, speech, earth, and sky. These were universal parents, much like Sakti and Shiva would become. Sakti, or Devi, is the divine feminine principle to Shiva's divine masculinity. They are the absolute of these principles from which all else derives its form. When we talk about the other goddesses like Kali, Parvati, and Durga, these are emanations of the originating Sakti. The goddess's Kali form, central to tantric practice, first emerged between the Kushan and Gupta periods around the year 400. Kali was named as one of the seven flames of the fire god Agni in the Mundaka Upanishad. Another early mention finds Kali tempting the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. Buddhist writer Asvagosha described her as a member of Mara's army who came bearing a skull to disturb the Buddha from his meditation. Kalidasa described Kali decked out in skulls attending the wedding of Shiva and Parvati. Parvati is the reincarnation of Shiva's first wife, Sati, and draws Shiva out from his solitary meditations into the world to be family man. Okay, I got all of that. <laughs> So Kali's just popping up in different places. Yes, she's in some yes. Buddhist texts. She's in some, but it, dating as early as 400, but that's the earliest we, we hear about her. Possibly she's an aspect of Agni, attending Agni, one of the seven flames. She's just got these different places she pops up. Agni is one of the original Hindu gods. If we think about like Shiva, Vishnu, and Brahma, they're, they're more recent. Oh. Uh, they're, they're like the revision of the ancient Vedic tradition where Agni would have been more central because it would have involved more fire rituals than we see today with the temples and the statues and stuff. Mm -hmm. The wild dangerous goddess in the style of the popular representations of Kali emerged after the first millennium. So for the first thousand years of the common era, even warrior deities like Durga were depicted as gentle and mild. In the second millennium, more fierce female deities began to appear. Hariti was a demon who murdered children until she lost one of her own 500 children, and the Buddha helped her to realize the pain that she had caused to others. 
Well, that's an important lesson to learn. <laughs> yes. Yes. Should attach to all 500. That's, that's a lot of work. After this revelation, she became a protector of children. Nice. There are the seven goddesses of disease associated with the Pleiades from Western tradition. Yeah. Among them is Sitala, the goddess of smallpox and cholera. Hmm. These goddesses were related to the Dakini, low caste female healers. Tantric practices shifted the goddess from part of the entourage of the male deity to the center of a higher form of worship beyond the male deities. So they reconceptualized the female as subordinate to superior to the male gods. About time. Right? It's a thousand years ago. Higher teachings regard achieving liberating insight through yogic practices related to the internal channels or nadi and meeting places or chakras. These practices include forms of sexual yoga. The Brihat Tantrasara, written in the 16th century in Bengal, reflects the power and danger of the fluids gathered through tantric sex rites. It continues to be an influential guide to ritual and iconography. It was composed by the Brahmin poet Krishnananda Agamavagisha. Krishnananda Agamavagisha. Ooh. Women in uh, his Mayathuna, or sexual union rituals, were drawn from all castes and in the context of the ritual represented the eternal creative energy and power of the absolute. She's given offerings and her body parts are individually consecrated to different deities. Everybody gets a part. Although there are various approaches involving retention of semen, in this ritual, the devotee ejaculates as a way of offering sacrifice and utters a mantra as he does so. The bodily fluids of male and female are then carefully removed from the woman's body and consumed. This fluid is immensely powerful and must not be handled or consumed except under the strict protocols of worship. That's where Crowley went wrong. Not strict enough. Right. In the... Also not Indian. In the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, we saw efforts to sanitize or purge Tantra. The Maha Nirvana Tantra quoted earlier was an effort to explicate the Tantras and Mantras whose meanings of the text said had been lost to history. It did not oppose the Vedas, as most Tantras were believed to be, but argued that its teachings were within the Vedas. The Vedas being the central texts of the Hindus. Right. It also did not identify the goddess or Shiva as supreme, but rather an impersonal Brahman to whom the first part of the book is devoted before Shiva turns to the worship of Parvati. So in part, what what the the Mahanirvana Tantra is trying to do is sort of like like if a book was excluded from the Bible, it's saying, well, no, no, Enoch actually belongs in the Bible, and here's the reasons. Tantra is part of the, the larger tradition. The the Mahanirvana Tantra sanitizes the image of Kali, separating her from associations with death and lust, and suggests that practitioners engage in tantric sex with their wives rather than lower caste women and menstruating prostitutes. So they've got an updated version. It's trying to, yeah, it's an 18th century attempt to make Tantra less subversive. Right. It says that every woman is an image of the goddess and opposes widow burning. That's a good thing. Yeah, way to go. Yeah, so widow burning, oh my goodness. <laughs> Where do I even begin? Are you, are you familiar with this practice, James? Uh, yes. Do, what, go ahead, speak on it for a second. Well, it's what the, the practice of burning women whose husbands have passed away. Yes. Because 
they shouldn't give themselves to anyone else and that they were their property and that they need to join their proper it's a way of maintaining purity right yeah yeah absolutely uh bar terrible practice yes very bad <laughs> absolutely terrible practice so we applaud the mahir nirvana tantra for opposing widow burning <laughs> Um, the practice of widow burning or self-immolation dictated that a woman should set fire to herself, as James sang after the death, distinctly misogynist. The book also promoted Saiva marriage, which required the consent of both the man and the woman, in contrast to marriages based entirely on arrangement, which, you know, is pretty much the plot of every Bollywood movie is (laughs) Saiva marriage and getting the parents to get on board. Not everyone, but it's a popular, it's a popular (laughs) plot line. There's some Bollywood movies that are about arranged marriages where people are trying to learn to love each other, but often you like meet and fall in, you meet cute and then you got to get your parents to approve. We should write one, Rob. Write a Bollywood movie? Yeah. <laughs> no, we can't afford the effects. <laughs> or the songs. Or the songs. Yeah, yeah. We can't afford the, the production values. It would also take us a long time. They're very long. So while the Mahanirvana <laughs> Tantra sought to clean up Tantra's act, others wanted to toss it out completely. Ram Mohun Roy was a late 18th century Bengali reformer regarded as a founding figure in Indian nationalism. He pointed out that roughly half of the wealth India produced was being sent away to England. He was also a cultural reformer arguing against the immolation of widows, polygamy, the caste system, and child marriage. I'm with him on all of those things. Sending money to the British and also child marriage. I'm against that. He argued for the... Going out on a limb here. Uh, Hot take. (laughs) He argued for the existence of an original, pure, monotheistic form of Hinduism and against Sakta Tantras and Kali worshippers. Interestingly, his mother was herself a devotee of Kali, and this caused a bitter rift between mother and son. Yeah, isn't that sad? You hate to see that. Dude, you should get along better with your mom. Yeah, if she wants to worship Kali, you know, let mom, she brought you into this world. She will take you out. Don't be spoiled. Right? Love your mother and her, and accept her religious traditions. (laughs) Even if you don't, you don't have to agree. No, you don't have to agree. But let let her worship who she worships. The key word is respect. Right. Tantrika. (laughs) Mom is not one of the M's. Definitely not one of the five M's. Tantrikas were often associated with gangs of thugs, with a capital T, thugs. So this is actually, this goes back to Indian history, the word thug. Very interesting. I love etymology. Yeah, here Here we we go. go. You're going to love this. Um, Associated with gangs of thugs in an effort to discredit them. Our modern word thug comes from these Indian thugs who committed thug-e, or highway robbery. It's the word for highway robbery is thug-e. So thugs committed thuggy. They'd approach their victims, engage them in conversation, and then kill them, generally by strangulation, and rob the corpses. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah. Leadership of these groups was often hereditary, and the thug tradition goes back as far as 700 years. Beginning in the 19th century, British colonizers made a concerted effort to capture and prosecute thugs, creating a kind of thug panic in the 1830s. One thug, assigned the pseudonym Feringia, turned king's evidence and led authorities to a mass grave containing over a hundred bodies. King's evidence would be like state's evidence. Okay. Feringia's tales became the basis for the 1839 novel Confessions of a Thug. <laughs> Sounds like an R. Kelly song. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which was adapted, of course. By, yes. 
by R. Kelly. R. Kelly? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not Jay-Z or... <laughs> I don't know. I'm old, Rob. <laughs> I've been inside. Biggie like... Smalls, we could go back. Yeah, there we go. Uh, many thugs considered themselves to have been uh, formed from the sweat of Kali during her battle with Raktabija. Uh, Raktabija, that comes up in our Kali episode. Although about a third of all thugs captured by the British were Muslims. Raktabija was a demon that Kali slayed. He, his head turned, he turned many, into many different things, many animals, and she all killed him. But colonial forces simply concluded that Muslims worshipped Kali as a subsidiary of Allah. The British believed that the thugs killed in sacrifice to Kali, saving humankind from her wrath through their violence. So in other words, the strangulations were all just sacrifices to the goddess to save everybody else, which sort of reconceptualizes them and makes them seem not so bad. But this was a misconception of thug belief, which had nothing to do with human sacrifice. It's likely that the British were simply trying, intentionally or not, to discredit Hinduism through this caricature of thug worship. It's possible that everything the British came to believe about the cult of the thugs was more or less imagined. But their association with Kali became a stain on tantric practice ever afterwards. So it's impossible to really tease out how much of this is true and how much of it is fabricated because the British wanted so much to believe that they were murdering human sacrificing Hindus out there. It was a way of saying that they were superior and therefore all Indians should convert to Christianity. Thugs. And Kali was the scapegoat. Kali's a great scapegoat because right. she's so... Um, they were just trying to cover cover rebrand her like she, a couple hundred years ago. And she, I mean, she is more sensational than a lot of the other gods in the Hindu pantheon. Right. With the skull necklace and all. Yeah. <laughs> Naked and the blue tongue, you know, the blue face and the tongue. Anyway, that's it, James. That's it for part one of our discussion. Oh, wow. Yeah. Focusing on Tantra as it was practiced and perceived in India. Next, we'll make the move to the West, specifically America, where Tantra took on a new second life as a westernized practice popular with New Agers. We'll be doing that next time. Whew. All right. Any any last thoughts, James, on Tantra in India? Well, it was it was a it was a crazy long ride. Um, yeah, it has ride. deep deep roots uh, in our history. Assuming uh, a long ride through thousands of years, yes, not listening to me of, talk yeah, about the tantric. timeline. <laughs> our bird's eye view of the timeline is is extensive, and uh, it's it's pretty unique how it's kind of uh, persevered through the epochs, as it were. Yeah, and um. That was really interesting learning about the thugs. Now, the, the thugs aren't, they weren't really like tantric people. They were more, they just had the association with Kali. Yes. Uh, they highway, they were highwaymen for right, sure. Highway highway robbers. For sure, right. There was not, no rights. But exactly what they were up to, rights. whether it was associated with tantra Hinduism, that's lost in British colonial BS. Right. Yeah. Hard to tell. Thanks. All right, so let's gong it on in, do the Order of Confessors, which uh, I guess I'm playing it a little weird today because we did the reviews at the beginning. I just want to talk about all the crap that we have been up to. Oh my goodness. So yes, I've been on a paternity leave. That's true. Fine. But we have been doing so much stuff. We've been developing so much new content. I have five new YouTube episodes, which is mostly new stuff that you would do not would not hear on the podcast. It is just me um, doing the five you should probably know five fill in the blank so five modern occultists five spiritualist mediums um five alchemists i think so some of the stuff overlaps with podcast content but it's also 
if you listen to the podcast and are looking for some cliff notes or, or looking for a, another way of, of uh, understanding the content, uh, in 15 minutes or less, I cover these topics. And I'm going to be doing five uh, episodes of a new series where I'm doing a very similar thing. I'm sort of like crunching down and digesting the bigger podcast topics into something bite-sized that comes with fun visuals from uh, Dan or I of the archive. And of course, Darkpool has returned. Uh, so we are now probably on episode three or four of Darkpool. Uh, mm. This is our second season of Darkpool. Scary stuff. Yeah, just Scary in time for spooky, spooky season. Yeah. Uh, and it's a brand new plot. Well, not a brand new plot, but it's building on the old plot. But we're doing new things with some new folks and some returning folks. Uh, so if you haven't gotten into Darkpool yet, give it a try. Give it a try. Uh, it is... Um, it's challenging. I, I'm going to say it, it's a uh, challenging stuff. It's it's deep stuff. Um, w- one of our friends on Discord said it's applied Rob, and and I think that's true. So you you are hearing some of my like uh, occult and artistic process uh, coming out for real in exercises that we actually do with the actors, but then inform uh, the show that we create. So dark pool. Um, we produce so many extra hours of content this year. Uh, and it's because of the almost 200 folks who are our patrons. They are paying to allow us to develop more content. But for them, it, we we would not be incentivized <laughs> to create more content. But I promised, and uh, we are following through here, that if if you all fund us, <laughs> we will devote more time and energy to developing more content. That's happening. Um, so please consider joining if you haven't, um, because there's a return on investment here. And those are the folks who are allowing you to have this content, those patrons. So, so we should all be grateful to them. I'm very grateful to them, but everybody should be. Mm. They're keeping us on the air. All right, James, do you know the closing words? Uh, you are the wind beneath my wings. <laughs> Is that it? I hereby I hereby uh, close this meeting of alchemical actors until we get together and do it again. I adjourn this meeting as well, James, uh, until such a time. Um, and we want to thank all of our voice boys, Sean Priest and Brandon Walls, Andrew Mims and Luke Kinneman for uh, providing the voices for the series, our Tantric series. Uh, and that's it that's it for tantra today we will be back with more tantra my name is rob c thompson joined by our captain of the table james caplanges thanks for listening thanks for joining us james we will catch you next time here on occult confessions